The following presentation is from the 63rd Annual Meeting of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, held in September 2006. Cyril Wecht, MDJD, is a prominent forensic pathologist who has been involved in many historic cases. We were talking about forensic pathology a little bit, uh, not much, uh, at our table uh, with Dr. Chrisman, Dr. Hendricks, Dr. Orient, and Dr. Corder. A little bit about uh, some of the things that they had or did not have in, in med school in terms of exposure uh, to this subject. Forensic pathology has been around, with all due respect, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to your um, respective uh, fields of endeavor. I uh, have enjoyed, uh, I don't know when I first uh, began to think about it, not anything particularly profound, and I guess uh, one could perhaps approach it in, in different ways in uh, engaging in these historical uh, reflections. But as I view it, uh, the oldest specialty in medicine really is uh, forensic pathology. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Well, think about it. If you go back thousands of years to the earliest civilizations, whenever there was a group of people living together in what we would call a civilized community, and it varied, obviously. Not every one of these was a truly wonderful civilization. Some, I think, were probably very uh, ruthless. Uh, some were the equivalent of a modern-day totalitarian society, and others uh, were true democracies. But in every one of those societies in which people lived together, just think. When someone died, was found dead, in something other than what they perceived to be a natural death at that time. A head bashed in, blood coming out from here or there, wounds, an unexpected, uh, inexplicable death. It had to bother people. I guess so far as moral, ethical consciences, that would have varied greatly. But uh, in other instances, it might have been based purely upon their own selfish concerns. Gee, can this happen to me? Might this be me tomorrow? Maybe it was concerned for a loved one. Whatever it was, think about it. You, didn't, you, 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 you just did not ignore that unnatural death. You had to address it for whatever the reason might have been. And so it seems to me, therefore, quite valid to make this observation that forensic pathology has been around for thousands of years. Now, I know this is going to come to a great shock to a lot of people here, and especially to the two Christman youngsters, who will believe, as probably anybody else uh, here in a, of a uh, relatively youthful age, that forensic pathology started with Quincy and has just <laughs> developed <clears throat> with some of the more recent medical detective shows, uh, CSI and so on. So I'm sorry to have disabused you of that idea. And, and to inform you that we are really quite ancient. And we see these references down through the centuries, whether, whether it was the Hammurabi Code, whether it was other codes that developed in these various civilizations. Many of these are found in religious uh, uh, tracts and so on. And uh, through the years, 
And Julius Caesar was assassinated. Uh, 23 uh, senators who wounded him. Um, the great Roman physician Antistius was called in and he made the determination that only one, <clears throat> only one of the 23 wounds could have been fatal. Uh, how did he make that? I do not know. Would it have been correct? Who knows? I assume he poured some viscous fluid and he saw that only one of the wounds permitted a, um, a direct flow into a body cavity. That's just an assumption on my part. But the point is, just think that they fought. They went to the trouble. They, somebody felt that it was necessary to evaluate um, that, uh, that death. And we see then, spanning through the years, and the centuries, uh, many, many references. I won't get into that. That can be a whole uh, discussion in and of itself. The Chinese then, in about the um, 13th century, developed a code uh, translated into English, the washing of wrongs, which today would have many, many legitimate and extremely valid and indeed accurate points for people who would be functioning as medical legal investigators as to what to do when they come upon the scene of a seemingly unnatural death. Way back then. And then uh, you have um, the great physician to the Pope, Paolo Zakia, who um, developed an incredible thick volume. What a thrill and great pleasure and honor it was to see the original at the Institute of Legal Medicine in Rome when we conducted our first international medical legal seminar in 1965 in conjunction with that uh, excellent uh, organization. And there is this book, Questiones de Medicina Legal, in which Zakia posed all kinds of questions ranging from abortion and incest and how long can there be a pregnancy uh, to determine paternity and so on, all the way into questions dealing with unnatural death. Fantastic. And then with the passage of the Dark Ages and the development of medical schools at all of the great centers in, in Europe, we see programs developing in legal medicine, forensic medicine, forensic science, medical jurisprudence. These terms are sometimes used interchangeably. Technically, there are distinct differences, but they uh, all pretty much touch upon somewhat similar subjects. And indeed, then, some of the early physicians, including George Washington's physician, who was partly responsible, uh, greatly responsible for uh, the president's death, they were, it seemed they, they, they felt he had an endless supply of blood. I mean, it just, uh, it's rather incredible, uh, really. The more blood they could take out, uh, the healthier he would become uh, uh, quicker. Isn't it fantastic, really? We think we know everything about medicine. Some of the younger people here today are going to live. I predict, I predict you'll remember that I said this to you. Um, not those of us who are my generation, but it's going to happen with um, younger people. About whether it's 35 or 50 year, the years go by and things move and develop exponentially, as we all know, right? We had the x-ray for all those years and then boom, boom, there's MRI and CAT scan and, and now PET scans and so on in just a couple of few decades. And there we were with just basic rentgenology for about a century or so. So it's going to happen. And, and you'll see 
that they're going to talk about some of the things that we do today therapeutically. And they're going to say, you did what? You gave that patient what? You're going to see. I have no question about that at all. In fact, I asked some of those questions myself already about some of the things uh, that, uh, that are being done. I've seen some of these uh, dramatic changes indeed, as have all of you. So anyway, um, we see these developments and then into the United States of America. Our system developed differently. We were talking a little bit about coroner's medical examiners. Dr. Christman was asking me about that. And um, uh, I will just uh, share with you a little bit of history, too, that is uh, germane to our discussion for this evening, that um, our coroner system, of course, comes uh, has a different uh, genesis, a totally different uh, etiology, a different uh, parentage. The kings in the old days in, in England were not the kings of later centuries. They did not have the kind of power and they did not have the consolidation of what we were now referred to as Great Britain and the British Empire uh, into the uh, 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. In the earlier centuries, they controlled parts of what we would today call Great Britain, and other parts were controlled by uh, brigands and self-appointed dukes and earls, and of course there was the powerful church. And all of that meant that when lands became available, battles took place between chieftains and people that owned thousands of acres and hundreds and thousands of serfs. What happened when somebody died? To whom did all of that property go? Who became the new boss? When a ship loaded with jewels and priceless uh, goods, let's say, went on the shoals, who uh, took over? Who determined responsibility? Who was at fault uh, if a carriage with six great steeds ran over somebody or so on? Well, who got there first oftentimes was the answer insofar as the taking of property. Now, there was also a sense of justice involved. It wasn't purely related to materialistic things, but uh, largely that was a, a major point the deodan, the giving unto God. And so the king came up with the idea, hey, if I can get my people there first, then I can grab the most and the quickest. And so he appointed these people loyal knights of the realm, and they were called crowners, having been appointed by the crown, emanating from the crown, crown, corona, hence coroner. And that was the genesis of the coroner system. And so it continued, and along with the other offices that were transposed from England uh, when the colonies were developed, was the office of coroner. It wasn't until 1877 that the first medical examiner system was adopted in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. A scandal occurred uh, in Boston. Bodies of infants, which could be packaged and carried around in a paper bag or a small box, were transferred from one to another corner so that each could collect the fee. And that was a little too much for the good people of Boston. And so they adopted the first medical examiner system. It wasn't until 1917 that the next change occurred in New York City. And then changes occurred in various jurisdictions. And you all come from different states. And some of you have medical examiner systems and some have corner systems. And that's also a subject for another day. I just mention it to give you an idea 
of how these different things develop. The bottom line, the common denominator is this for forensic pathology, for official governmental medical legal investigation. The investigation of violent, sudden, suspicious, unexpected, unexplained, medically unattended deaths. Known, suspected, suspicious, homicides, accidents, suicides. Cases in which you really just cannot know and you really shouldn't be comfortable in making an assumption about what was the cause of death. And of even greater importance and of much more perplexity more frequently to the forensic pathologist is the determination of the manner of death. Cause of death we usually can come up with. Guy's got a gunshot wound to the head. You don't have to be a forensic pathologist uh, to see uh, that, uh, that you've got uh, craniocerebral injuries, call it whatever you will. But was it an accident, suicide, or homicide? You've got three manners of death, and an awful lot can depend upon that. The guy in the park garage, with no note, <clears throat> no hose attachment, carbon monoxide. I've talked to some people in the family. Eh, you know, he was kind of sad, depressed, lost his job. He and his wife haven't been getting along. Kids have grown and moved away. They have very little contact with him. He's been um, making some comments so that, you know, maybe it's time to chuck it all in and so on. Uh, he kind of leaned towards suicide. Really? And you talk to some other people and say, man, he's so happy to be away from that job. His wife, uh, they haven't talked very much probably since their honeymoon night. The kids, he never gave a damn about anyway when they were here. What's the difference now? Uh, and he's looking forward to hunting and fishing. It's an accident, right? I mean, you know, who knows? Or maybe if his wife has a boyfriend, now consider the possibility of homicide. Uh, so you, you are in a position of making decisions that are very, very important. Now let's talk about some cases, though, that are uh, uh, interesting. And um, probably most, if not all, will be known uh, to you. And um, let me approach it perhaps this way. Let's talk about some of the political cases first. We'll deal with that, the genre. And then let's talk about some celebrity cases. And let's talk about some cases which did not involve people who were celebrities ab initio, but who became uh, celebrities uh, later on. Um, and uh, let's, let's do this maybe chronologically uh, somewhat. John F. Kennedy. This, um, of course, for me, is uh, the most important case in, in my career. I think, uh, from a medical legal forensic pathology standpoint, it should be the most important case, too, for all Americans. It doesn't make any difference whether you're Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, white, black, Catholic, Protestant, Jew, Muslim, what have you. Uh, this is a president. This is a person who's been elected uh, by our people, uh, who is the leader of our government, and he is gunned down on the streets of a major city. That's not something we should be comfortable with. That's not something, no matter what you might feel politically, that you should be uh, complacent about, uh, not only morally and ethically, but just as an American citizen and having something like this happen uh, in our country. You know, these things can happen elsewhere, but uh, while we are rather blasé and um, 
frankly, uh, usually unconcerned and uh, sometimes chauvinistically um, <clears throat> cavalier about, well, you know, what do you expect from such a country? Uh, we don't really expect it in our country. Well, uh, was it just the work of a madman? Well, the Kennedy assassination is a discussion uh, for me of an hour and a half, two hours all by itself. And I'm not going to spend that time uh, here this evening um, because I understand the organization is not going to foot the bill for a special breakfast. Is that right, Dr. Orient? Uh, so we'll have to move along quicker than that. You've got the president going down to Dallas, November 22nd, 1963. It's already the beginning of the campaign year for 64. Texas is a major state. The South is still uh, not uh, particularly enthusiastic about Catholics and especially about liberal Catholics from the state of Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, this organization, probably you're not too excited about liberals from Massachusetts either, right? I mean, but um, I think I even heard a couple of comments to that effect uh, from a couple of people. Tonight. But um, he knew that Texas was a key state. It was a bad place to go. U.N. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson had been physically jostled and spat upon a couple of days before. His closest advisors did not want him to go. I don't think anybody thought he was going to be assassinated, but they just thought there were going to be some ugly moments. And indeed, there were that immediately preceded his visit. H.L. Hunt paid for and, and had distributed thousands and thousands of handbills with the president's uh, picture on it and the caption beneath, Wanted for Treason. The largest downtown newspaper had received and accepted a full-page ad, which appeared to be an obituary notice with a black trim around the edges, um, accusing um, Kennedy of uh, everything uh, vow and, uh, and, and imaginable. Um, and, you know, it was just a, a bad, bad scene. So uh, they go there after a breakfast meeting at Fort Worth. They fly into the old uh, Love Field, and they take off in the motorcade. And then into downtown Dealey Plaza. It's now 1230 Central Time. And as the cars wend their way slowly uh, down Main Street, turning right onto Houston, and then left onto Elm Street, proceeding slightly downward, uh, shots ring out. President is shot, then John Conley seated directly in front of him in a jump seat. Uh, he shot, and the president is hit again, and many of you probably have seen now portrayed the Zapruder film on television, frame 313, when the head literally explodes in a crimson burst, and brain tissue and blood uh, just uh, flow uh, upward and outward. They move quickly to Parkland Hospital, arriving there in a matter of minutes. It was then, as it is today, a major trauma center. Some 18 physicians were there, quickly came. One physician who went on to become head of surgery there, Jim Carrico, at that time a resident, was so sharp, he had read a, an article in JAMA which talked about a distinguished, prominent American politician who was not named, who suffered from Addison's disease. And many people, physicians, had come to figure out that it was John F. Kennedy. And Carrico was there with the appropriate medications to treat somebody who has adrenal insufficiency. Of course, that was all to no avail. Champ Clark, the head of neurosurgery, uh, was called in, and uh, he looked at him, and his words were, there is nothing to be done to save this man, a big gaping defect in the back of the head. And he was pronounced dead, given <clears throat> last rites, uh, and the doctors had a news conference. 
the local coroner was there to assume jurisdiction with the medical examiner, who at that time was a forensic pathologist. The feds said no way. It came to be a very violent argument with a lot of profanity and uh, physical, physical jostling and hands even on guns. And you knew who was going to prevail in that uh, situation. So they took the body of the president, violating the laws of the city and county of Dallas and the state of Texas, and uh, transported it to Washington, D.C. Now, actually, the passage of time in this case was of no moment. It's not like O.J. Simpson. It's not like Jean-Benet Ramsey. Uh, there was no problem. We know when he died. We know when he was shot. And we know where he was shot. So that's not a problem. And we also have a condition which is not going to be altered in some way, uh, pathophysiological fashion, that is going to obfuscate uh, the findings and make it more difficult for the forensic pathologist to come to conclusions. So that in and of itself, the time passage was of no consequence. But how about where, or more specifically, by whom the autopsy was done? There are many people, intelligent, educated people, like this group here, I'm sure, that do not know. And especially, do I like to emphasize this, admittedly, with a little bit of, not quite sadistic, but certainly some kind of, of personal pleasure in pointing out to the 15, 20% of Americans who still continue to buy the Warren Commission report that Lee Harvey Oswald was responsible for all of this. And because, look, man, they did it and the government told us it is so. Well, I think I've got the right audience here tonight uh, when it comes to just accepting what the government tells you. Um, I start off with an advantage in that respect only, folks. Uh, the the to, to know this, especially well for anybody, but especially for those who continue to buy the Warren Commission report that the pathologist called in to do this autopsy on the President of the United States of America, 1963, were two pathologists, career naval people at Bethesda, who had never done a medical legal autopsy in their entire careers, had never done a gunshot wound. You heard what I said. I don't have to exaggerate. I don't have to make five or six or ten into none. It was, it was none. They had never done a gunshot wound case. Humes and Boswell. Why were they called? Well, they were there. They were good, competent hospital pathologists, career people. But they were military officers, and they would do what they were told to do. And that is exactly what happened. And I don't have time to go into all the details, but let me just tell you that the incompetence was absolutely unbelievable. And that is what gave birth primarily to the debacle that ensued. That here we are in the year 2006, 43 years later, and even among the people on the Warren Commission side, the sycophants, self-appointed defenders for whatever reason, and even among the critics on the other side, still arguing 43 years later where exactly was the point of entrance of the gunshot wound or wounds on the president's head. We can argue, you know, 
who did it, when was it done, why was it done, was it self-defense, uh, were you standing here, were you standing there? You got a lot of questions that can go on for many cases forever and ever. But I have never known of a case, never, from the most unimportant individual uh, in a criminal murder, in a homicide case, to, to some of the biggest shooting cases that I've been involved in or know about. I've never known of a case where there's been that kind of, of an argument. 43 years later, JAMA, some years ago, they came out with a series of articles because the editor-in-chief was a close friend, a former military comrade, military medical comrade of Humes and Boswell. And he wanted to rehabilitate them. Now, these guys had first placed the wound at the base of the skull just by the occipital protuberance. Then, when they came before our forensic pathology panel in 1978, the House Select Committee on Assassinations following the Ramsey-Clark panel, appointed by then Attorney General Ramsey Clark in 1968, in which the people there, including my former chief, Russell Fisher, Chief Medical Examiner of Maryland, and Alan Morris, the dean of forensic pathology in those years, had moved the bullet wound up, according to their study in 1968, 100 millimeters, four inches. Now take a look at the person next to you. I don't know, somebody with the smallest head, uh, our, our little uh, boys here, or somebody uh, with, a, with a larger head, the tallest among you. Four inches? Is, is, is it possible uh, to, to mess up something that badly? When they did the autopsy that night, they missed a bullet hole in the front of the neck. Did you have to go to medical school to learn to see somebody's neck with a hole in it? Do you think you had to become a doctor, let alone a forensic pathologist? Well, you all know the answer to that, even if you know nothing about the case. How could they have missed a hole in the neck of somebody who's been shot in the head? Because they did a tracheostomy, that's why. They quickly ascertained that the bullet had ripped through the trachea. They weren't going to repair that and then do a tracheostomy. And so they said, hey, we're going to use it down there at Parkland Hospital. We're going to use the channel already made by the bullet, but we've got to expand the, the hole on the front of the neck because it's too small to attach the cuff from the respirator machine. And so they did that, not attending in any way uh, to, uh, to obfuscate, to, uh, to destroy evidence. It was... I think, the right thing to do uh, clinically. But these guys who did the autopsy that night, totally inexperienced as they were in forensic pathology, and then having failed to talk with the surgeons in, in Dallas before commencing the autopsy, something that we always know should be done where there's been surgery, because surgeons will in, inevitably, invariably go through the hole. They're not thinking about the forensic pathologist. They're not thinking about saving the bullet wound. They're thinking about getting to the scene, to the site of the internal pathology. What better way than to follow that knife wound or that bullet wound? Why screw around and go uh, a half inch or an inch above or below? And so that's what happened. It wasn't until the next day when the president's body was gone 
and their official report had been already submitted to President Johnson and Jagger Hoover that they learned for the first time in a phone conversation with the doctors at Dallas that they had missed a bullet hole in the front of the president's neck. And so you, you, get, you get a feel for this. You, get a, you have an idea of how this has come to be, the mess that it is. And then along came the Zapruder film, Abraham Zapruder, a businessman, bought an 8mm Bellhaw camera, went to take pictures that day, stood on a parapet um, um, by Dealey Plaza, and when the cars turned onto Elm Street, he started. And the Zapruder film is the most important piece of photographic evidence. It probably is the most important piece of evidence, period, in the entire case. And um, that is what then led to a real problem. Because now, you see, Lee Harvey Oswald was killed on Sunday morning in the Dallas Public Safety Building by Jack Ruby. And that's a whole story in and of itself. Uh, And so on. So he's gone. Johnson is screaming for the report. And everything seems to be okay. They've uh, revised the locations of bullet holes to make them fit so that they could all have been uh, fired from the rear and the sixth floor window, southeast corner of Texas School Book Depository Building, etc. And um, everything seems to be in place when, lo and behold, they study the Zapruder film and they determine the FBI, Bellhaw people, 18.3 frames of the film strip move through the camera per second. You know, the old days when you put in your spool of film and it moved 18 and a third frames, individual frames, which shown at a certain speed, give you a movie. Okay, so they see that Kennedy shot, and then they see that Connolly is shot, clearly 1.5 seconds after Kennedy could do this at 1 18th second intervals, which I had an opportunity to do with Life magazine in 1965 when they purchased the Zapruder film um, from um, him, and I studied it as they had done there in 1963 into 1964, the members of the Warren Commission and their staff think about it. Photographs laid out in a room, as I recall, it was uh, almost as big as this, and you could move from picture to picture, and you could study the assassination of the president and the wounding of Governor John Conley at 1-18th second intervals. Not a thought that you can entertain, there's not a word you can utter, there's not a movement you can make 18 seconds, 18 times in one second, but you can study this murder at 1-18th second intervals. Okay, and then they test-fired the alleged murder weapon. This is a non-automatic bolt-action carbine, the Manneker Carcano, a piece of junk every long-gun expert I've ever talked to says that it is the worst weapon of its kind in its genre. Nobody jokes about it more than the Italians. When we were there for a later seminar in 71 or 72, back at the Institute, and they asked me to talk about the uh, JFK assassination, and I discussed it. And when I was talking about the Manicure Carcano, I saw a couple of the professors uh, looking at each other and smiling and, and so on, and uh, I, I thought I had said, uh, done something wrong, so I grabbed uh, Silvio Murley, who was the associate director, went on to become the director. We had become uh, quite friendly, and... Uh, uh, he he spoke uh, good English, and I said, Silvio, after after it was true, I, I apologize. Did I say something that was uh, offensive, that was humorous, or so on, inappropriate? He said, No, you got to understand. In Italy, 
of the Manicurk Arcano is considered to be an instrument of love, not a weapon of war. <laughs> and I've never, never, never forgotten that. Well, they test-fired the weapon, and they found that it took the best shots that they could come up with, the best shooters in the FBI and the military, 2.3 seconds from shot to shot. 2.3 seconds. Oswald had flunked his marksmanship test the first time around in the U.S. Marines, got a barely passing score the second time around. How, how did he do it? How do you get over that seemingly impossible physical incongruity, that unbelievable, formidable obstacle? You've already got it in place. Oswald is dead. Oswald, the lone assassin. We've told the whole world that. But boy, how do we do it? And that is what gave birth to the single bullet theory. The single bullet theory, which holds that one bullet went into Kennedy's back and they moved that wound up uh, to make it fit in with uh, a shot um, that was fired from above. Um, and entered his back, exited from the front of his neck, mm, turned uh, 18, 20 inches in midair, came back to the right, slammed into John Connolly's right posterior axillary area, um, went through, pierced the right lung, broke um, and destroyed 10 centimeters of the right fifth rib anteriorly, exited from um, the chest below the level of the nipple, curved then upward and slammed into the dorsal surface of his right wrist, and you can see clearly on the Zapruder film, he's holding that big Texas Stetson hat um, at this level, just a little below the shoulder, and clearly quite above the nipple level. So it hooks up and around, goes through, shatters the distal end of the radius, exits from the volar aspect of his right wrist, goes into his left thigh, down the left femur, and that bullet then is the hero of the Warren Commission report, Commission Exhibit 399, the single bullet theory. Seven wounds in two men, gyrations vertically and horizontally that would make the creator of the best roller coaster ride in America green with envy. I mean, whatever you want. On the night of the autopsy, that stretcher bullet, then that's what it was referred to because it was found by, on, near. We never got it quite clear. Was it on the stretcher? Was it beneath the stretcher? Whose stretcher? But it was a stretcher by the emergency room. And Daryl Tomlinson had to go to the men's room. He was a maintenance man at the hospital, thank God. And he moves the stretchers, and there's this bullet which nobody had seen before. 6.5 millimeter copper jacket, a lead core, military ammunition, an inch and a quarter in length, a quarter of an inch in diameter. And there is this bullet near pristine with a weight loss of only 1.5%. Store-bought condition, 161 grains, as found, 158.6 grains. Use your fast math, 2.4 grains, exactly 1.5%. And yet it left fragments in Kennedy and in Connolly. And we tried to get some of those fragments before uh, he went to the grave when he died, by the way. And uh, regrettably, Nellie Connolly uh, refused to allow us uh, to have that done. So the single bullet theory is the sine qua non of the Warren Commission report. Without it, without it, you cannot have a sole assassin. Well, we can do uh, more on Kennedy another time. But that's for openers on forensic pathology, medical legal investigation, on famous cases, and how sometimes you see a case then, even someone as prominent as the president. You would have thought, would you not? 
just as happened with some of our presidents who needed surgery, uh, who needed the cardiologist uh, and so on. They brought in uh, seemingly the best, whether you thought uh, he or she was the best, you would have, anybody, any group of physicians would have acknowledged it was one of the very best. Can you think of a, of a situation analogous to this? where to do this autopsy and to make these determinations as to the mm, sequence of shots, the angles, the trajectory, the correlation of Kennedy's wounds and Connolly's wounds that they called upon two pathologists who had never done a gunshot wound? Why? Well, we know there were 36 people in the, in the autopsy room that night, including four-star admirals and generals. And that's why you have military pathologists. Then there's Robert Kennedy. Well, you got to say, hey, come on, Bobby Kennedy, man, everybody knows Sirhan, Sirhan shot him. What's, uh, well, yeah, that's right. Sirhan, Sirhan sure did shoot, and there's no question about that. We all know that, and we have seen it portrayed many times. So here's something I like to do. This is an erudite uh, uh, audience. Uh, Tell me, uh, what is your recollection of the Robert Kennedy assassination at the time that Sirhan shot um, within a range. Just just speak up, uh, folks. What was the distance of <clears throat> Sirhan's uh, hand, his gun, from Bobby Kennedy when the fatal shots were fired? Anybody have any memory? Eight, 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 eight ten, two, five, five three. three. Okay. <laughs> the range. It varies just like that. Okay, you ready for this? This autopsy was done by uh, an excellent forensic pathologist, a dear friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Tom Noguchi, who was the chief medical examiner in the corner of Los Angeles for many years. What if I tell you that Tom, six of his other forensic pathologists, verified by criminalistics studies shooting that same kind of weapon, a 22 long Ivor Johnson, same kind of ammunition. Two civilian forensic pathologists, I uh, was one of the two, that there was unanimity of opinion, unequivocally, that the fatal shot that struck Senator Robert Kennedy in the right posterior temporal area was fired one to one and a half inches away from his head. Shocking, huh? You got to then say, hey, what is Weck telling us? Come on, man, I, I, I know that case. I followed it. How come we never heard about it? Dr. Noguchi gave that testimony in the grand jury. Tom gave it like it was. And in the trial, it was never touched upon. The prosecution wasn't going to touch it with the proverbial 10-foot pole. And the defense never called any forensic pathologist, ballistics, gun, um, gun expert, criminalist. There was no forensic scientific testimony. The entire defense was the Twinkie defense. Some of the older people, some of the psychiatrists, remember the Twinkie defense? When the mayor of San Francisco and colors were shot, and, uh, and they said that the guy that did the shooting was temporarily insane because he ate too many Twinkies. Remember? (laughs) The little kids and the older people don't know what Twinkies were. Maybe some of you folks that came from uh, more affluent communities, I remember it. My mother and father had a little 
corner grocery mom and pop store. And among the little pastries that were sold for nickel apiece, by the way, as I recall, was the Twinkie. It was a semi-elliptical, light yellowish-orange with some kind of a white stuff. You know, I was a chubby little kid, and I played the violin four hours every day, and so my father made sure I was happy, and he would bring me Cokes, and I had access to the candy, uh, all the penny. The one thing I ate one time, one time, took two bites of was the Twinkie, and that was enough. I never touched Twinkies again. Um, See, I was already showing some evidence of intellectualism at that early age. but anyway, so that was the, the defense, the Twinkie. Not that Sirhan had eaten too many Twinkies, but that he was temporarily insane um, for other reasons, his own political views, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, there's the Robert Kennedy case. So you say, hey, uh, what about uh, these things? How do they happen? Now I'm giving you another example, you see, where you have excellent forensic pathology, but you have either total incompetence, which is hard to uh, imagine, really, because the defense attorney, Grant Cooper, was an old pro, had been around a long time. Why was that finessed? How could it have been finessed? We'll never know about Grant Cooper because he died uh, not too long after the trial. And now we're on the Kennedys. So let's talk about uh, Teddy and Mary Jo Kopechny. Well, they're having uh, a big party, and... Uh, uh, <clears throat> A lot of frolicking. Um, that's a good word to use for a younger company, right? And uh, uh, Teddy leaves uh, with Mary Jo, an attractive uh, young uh, woman, unmarried. And uh, the next morning, the body of a young woman is found in a submerged car in Chappaquiddick Pond. Now, I already told you that the first jurisdiction in America to adopt a medical examiner system was the Commonwealth of of, of Massachusetts in 1877. There's a deputy medical examiner. That's a nice title, right? He's an appointed person. We're going to get competence automatically, right? He's there. He doesn't, they don't even have the body identified initially. He makes the determination that no autopsy is necessary. Mary Jo Kopechny's body is then flown down to Pennsylvania, Luzerne County, Wilkes-Barre, where her parents live. And now increasing, increasing news media frenzy. Hey, man. Hey, Mr. District Attorney, what are you going to do about this? And so on. And so uh, I got a phone call asking me if I would testify before the judge um, in Luzerne County and try to explain what could be learned from an autopsy, even though she had now been buried for some time. And uh, there were a couple of other forensic pathologists. um, And um, interestingly, even then on the other side, amazingly, a colleague of mine who's a highly respected forensic pathologist and a textbook writer, he was there. You can always get somebody to testify to something uh, that uh, you really... uh, you wouldn't learn, or or it wasn't necessary, or um, it would not be sufficiently unequivocal, or whatever. Obviously, if if an autopsy should have been done at some point in time, and it wasn't done, then it should be done later on. I talk more people out of exhumations than encourage them to do it. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, I'm neither ghoulish 
um, nor money hungry. But there are times when an exhumation is essential. And of course, this was such a time. But here we were in Luzerne County, 80, probably 80, 85% Catholic. The Capecni family Catholic strongly opposed to having her daughter exhumed. Ted Kennedy's people there fighting it tooth and nail. The judge coming up for a retention re-election in one month. The district attorney not saying that he has filed charges against anybody. He just wants to have the body exhumed. And yet the body has left Massachusetts jurisdiction where he had the power to have it done. They put it all together and you come up with the result. The judge uh, said no. He was really a very nice guy. I share this with you. We're not permitted to tell ethnic jokes anymore in America. It's uh, culturally uh, improper. But you can quote somebody, which is what I do. Just like the Pope the other day quoted um, a very distinguished uh, theologian of the 14th century, or 15th century, uh, or 16th century, whatever it was, um, with regard to the um, Islamic religion and Mohammed. If you haven't read that, by the way, make sure you get your New York Times um, and read that. So I can quote too. So Judge Brominski, who really was a very gracious guy and a very, very uh, charming person, and he was so nice to all of us on the witness stand. We were having lunch. So I was there with the district attorney and the state police from Massachusetts at one table, and the Kennedy people were at another table, and the Quebecni people at another table, and so on. And Brominski came in, and he was, uh, he was a sharp guy, and he schmoozed with each table. And he came over to our table, I'll never forget it, and he said, I want you to know what they're saying about me just because I'm Polish is not true, that I'm going to grant the order for the autopsy but deny the order for the exhumation. (laughs) Um, And uh, I I remember that well. Um, And while I was professionally and intellectually disappointed, I will tell you from a political juris, um, uh, uh, juridical uh, perspective, I, I think that he, he, made, he made the proper decision. So there we have the, the, the Kennedy saga of Jack and, and, and Robert and, uh, and Ted. Um, well, let's, um, let's continue on the political genre um, briefly and quickly. Uh, um, Ron Brown, very close to Bill and Hillary, probably undoubtedly the most important African-American political person um, at that time, and um, a highly respected individual, uh, been a top-notch attorney and so on. So he goes over to Bosnia-Herzegovina, and there's a plane, 32, 33 people. They're there, uh, kind of a, a tour to see what can be done, what's going to be done socioeconomically, industrially, etc. The plane crashes, everybody is killed. When that happens with a distinguished person or personalities, military or otherwise, those bodies are brought back to the United States, and they are autopsied at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware by forensic pathologists who come up from Washington, D.C. at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. And so that's what was done here. So Ron Brown is on the table. The best forensic pathologist at the AFIP at that time, and no question about that, all of us agreed. He looks over. He's not working on Ron Brown. He's got another body. He looks over, and he says, hey, uh, that looks like a, uh, like a gunshot wound. It's uh, circular. It's symmetrical. It's uh, got uh, inward beveling. Um, X-rays showed uh, snowstorming effect. Uh, fragments uh, of a minuscule nature begin to break off. Uh, 
and uh, said, uh, oh, we're going to see. And he was told no autopsy was to be done. And no autopsy was done. And when he continued to talk about this later, he was first switched over from forensic pathology to dermatopathology at the AFIP. Then he was placed under house arrest, and he was threatened with court-martial, and then finally just chucked it all and left after 14 years of military service and said, that is enough. <clears throat> Interesting, right? And then you've got Vincent Foster. I know this is, as Dr. Orient has referred to, a case that was near and dear to the hearts of those of you who were around back then in the early 90s with Hillary Clinton and her health care plan, which was, uh, I believe, largely the work of Ira Magaziner. Um, a, a, a horrible, horrible plan, uh, if there ever was one, and uh, it was quickly uh, or soon recognized, and this organization deserves a great deal of credit uh, for having gone to the mat in, in fighting that uh, at that time. Um, and uh, which brings me to really why I'm here tonight to find out which one of you really murdered uh, Vincent Foster because um, I, I, was, I was told that it really was an AA um, PPS uh, venture um, so we'll be doing some tests as you all leave the room later on folks just taking we have some material that was collected there so a little bit of DNA you won't mind will you a little buckle swap so he's found dead in uh, Marcy Park, as Dr. Orion said. And um, this is a guy, the closest friend of Bill and Hillary's, former law partner from Little Rock and so on. His office is right there in the White House. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's a tragic death. It's a parent gunshot wound. They did do an autopsy, uh, Northern Virginia jurisdiction. Um, and then we find out, well, the x-ray machine wasn't working. It didn't take good pictures. Um, and um, very, very inadequate. Not the kind of work that that particular forensic pathologist, whom I knew and had known for many years, was capable of doing. Well, here we have a case of a man who is a competent forensic pathologist, and you look at the Vincent Foster autopsy report, and it is missing a great deal. And then you've got the investigation, and what's missing there is the bullet. Oh, they found everything. They found uh, uh, old used uh, uh, condoms. The boys don't know what they are. Uh, do they? I don't think so. Uh, they found those, they found, uh, you name it, they found uh, lollipop sticks, they found, but they never found the bullet. Then you've got the gun, which was uh, ancient vintage, uh, supposedly his father's, and so on and so forth. I had uh, a wonderful time. Uh, um, Richard Mellon Scaife, who is a uh, billionaire from the Mellon family in Pittsburgh, the owner-publisher of a newspaper now, um, and so on, and who was the major contributor to Richard Nixon's creep campaign and so on, a, a real ultra right-wing Republican conservative. Uh, I don't know, by the way, if you haven't thought about it, uh, Dr. Orion, you had to look to him for a donation for, this, for your organization. You might be able to get it. He's got money to burn, and he, he'll, he'll give money to causes that he believes in. So he hired a reporter uh, to work full-time, Ruddy, Christopher Ruddy, uh, remember, did you, oh, you know, see, yeah, okay. And Roddy and I developed a, a great relationship. I, I was consulted in that case then by 
the United States Senate Banking Committee. Here I was, a, a lifelong, dare I say in this audience, Democrat, no tomatoes, please. Boo, boo, boo. Um, and I get a call. Um, a, a, a dentist um, whom I had taught at Pitt Dental School, his daughter was the assistant chief counsel for the Senate Banking Committee, chaired by Senator Alphonse D'Amato from, from New York. It was a Republican-controlled Senate. And so I became an official consultant and, uh, and spent a lot of time. And um, then later on, I even learned that uh, I was having calls referred to me uh, from the White House and so on. Well, the Vincent Foster case, suffice it to say, remains a, a great enigma. Um, there, there is much to criticize. There is no question that the case was not handled well. There can be no question to be perfectly objective about this in a detached fashion that this case uh, was not comfortably shown to be a suicide. The problem, however, for those, and, and now to be serious, perhaps uh, uh, all or the great majority of you who believe that it was something other than suicide, um, the problem is that nobody has come up with hard, physical, tangible, forensic evidence to show that it was a homicide or that he had killed himself somewhere else and his body was transported there. There were theories, there were ideas, and so on, but nothing uh, was ever, ever shown to my knowledge, as I recall uh, my last discussions with Mr. Ruddy, and that goes back quite a long time. But I have no hesitation, and I do not say this obsequiously uh, or to uh, try to ingratiate myself with this group, uh, knowing uh, generally how you all feel, uh, most of you perhaps, uh, but I say it, and I say it to any audience, uh, uh, to the most liberal group, uh, that the Vincent Foster case um, is a badly bungled case, um, and it is a case which, which indeed could have been something other than what it was officially ruled to be, but it is a case now that we shall never know, uh, undoubtedly. And it's not the only one of the genre, but it's another example, you see, of how when forensic pathology fails to do its job, then society, at some level, in some serious fashion, may pay the price. Um, and now let's uh, go over to uh, two celebrities. Uh, we'll touch upon them uh, quickly, uh, a few of them anyway. Got Elvis Presley. Here's an example of forensic pathology, thwarted, aborted. Um, it was a deliberate attempt to circumvent something that should have been done properly. This is a relatively young man, early 40s, dies suddenly, unexpectedly. That's already, by definition, a medical examiner's case. And medical examiner's system in Tennessee. They had good forensic pathologists experienced. But they also knew that if they made it an ME case, it was just a matter of time before the autopsy report with the toxicology results gets out there. You can't keep it hidden and covered forever. And so they come up with the idea that, hey, we can't finesse this, we can't get away without an autopsy, but what if we say that it's a private case and the family has given permission? And so you all know then, as physicians, just like you with your patients, so must it be with a private pathologist. You don't divulge autopsy reports. It's nobody's business but the families and so on. 
So they get the autopsy done at Baptist Hospital in Memphis by a pathologist there. The medical examiner of Memphis goes there. The autopsy isn't even finished, and he's already outside holding a news conference that Elvis Presley died as a result of heart disease. His heart was minimally hypertrophic, if at that, if that, considering uh, his weight, which had become rather of gargantuan proportions, um, it, it is arguable whether it was at all enlarged. But I don't have to quibble, give a 10, 15 percent enlargement. Who cares? There was no coronary atherosclerosis of any significance a- at all. How do you know what the cause of death was until you get back toxicology reports? Well, later on, they came back. Elvis Presley had 12 central nervous system depressant drugs. Twelve! And you all know as physicians what that means, the concept of synergistic action. Three or four of them were at a sublethal dose. Three or four were definitely in the potentially toxic range, and you just put them one on top of the other. And that's what, of course, killed Elvis Presley. So you say, well, who cares? And so on. It's not a personal thing, but it, it is not the right thing to do in a society like ours. And here is an example, again, you see, of how medical legal investigation can be uh, uh, thwarted for reasons which are not just moral, ethical, or legal. And then you've got uh, Tammy Wynette. Uh, uh, that's another case in which I was involved. Uh, she was in Pittsburgh. She had organ transplantation. She goes back to her home in Tennessee. She's found dead again suddenly and quickly. Her children are accusing their stepfather, Tammy's husband, of having murdered her in some way. And that became ugly, both criminally and civilly, and they did not even do an autopsy there. They had the doctor, the transplant doctor from Pittsburgh, go down to Tennessee with no Tennessee license to declare her dead and to determine the cause of death by looking at her body. Very interesting. You would think sometimes that there would be even better concentration of expertise applied to that particular case and amazingly, paradoxically so often it is the case that these cases uh, these instances are not handled uh, properly then you've got um, cases, well uh, cases in which somebody becomes a celebrity, one which kind of crosses the line between celebrity and uh, going in and celebrity coming out was the case of Dr. Herman Tarnauer and Gene Harris. Tarnauer was somewhat of a celebrity because he wrote, remember, one of those early, the Scarsdale Diet uh, book uh, from uh, Westchester County, New York, a very prominent cardiologist. And, uh, you know, a, a, a bit of a womanizer, but he wasn't married, uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's his business. And Gene Harris was his paramour. Gene was a very distinguished uh, intellectual lady. She was the headmistress of Madeira School, the most prominent uh, school, the secondary level of education for women um, in the country, certainly east of the Mississippi. And so Jean finds out that uh, Dr. Tarnauer is cheating on her with a younger nurse, which, by the way, is, is, is an amazing thing in and of itself because, you know, I've never heard of anything like that happening in America. I mean, the very idea that a doctor who's been married or has a girlfriend would fool around with a younger nurse, I find that uh, deplorable. And uh, uh, um, 
so anyway, she goes up there to New York for a confrontation, and he winds up dead. And he's dead of multiple gunshot wounds. And well, no, it wasn't a suicide. <laughs> and uh, this is a discussion that I've had at our dinner table. My boys were, uh, my daughter were teenagers at the time, and my wife, and she's shaking her head even now um, because I testified. I went up there, and we met and talked with Jean Harris, um, the criminalist, blood spatter expert, and I, and we asked her for her story. Just tell us what happened. And she told us what happened. We went to the house, um, and we examined everything there. And I will tell you that the story she told was a story that actually could, and I believe did happen in the struggle and the fight for the gun, that it was her intention to shoot herself in his presence. And um, uh, in, the, in the, the battle that went on, he winds up being shot. And there was good scientific evidence there, too. Jean Harris, by the way, there were eight women on the jury. If she had one tear, if she had pulled out a white handkerchief one time and wiped her cheek, she not only would have walked out clear, she would have been carried out on their shoulders. But not Jean. Uh-uh. Boy, she was, you know, a woman of dignity, of pride, of stubborn, arrogant, all of those things. And she wasn't going to bend for anybody. And she did not. And the jury, including the eight women, did not empathize with her and, and so on. And she was convicted. I corresponded with Jean and still do on off. Uh, she did some wonderful work um, at the uh, uh, women's prison there in New York State with unwed uh, mothers and, and others. And uh, she got out. It's, it's a shame. It was uh, a, uh, a woman that uh, did and could have contributed a lot more. So you got that kind of a case. Then uh, another case uh, that, well, goes is the transition between political and celebrity. Uh, maybe it de- deserves its own categorization, uh, David Koresh and Waco Branch Davidian. I went down there and I did second autopsies on David Koresh and his two top lieutenants, Steve and Judy Schneider. And, uh, you know, the government had said that they hadn't fired any shots. Uh, uh, everything came from the inside and, and, and then so on and so forth. Well, um, uh, all of that, as it came out later on in the, in the civil cases, was shown to have been a, a big lie. Uh, no question. that. And the, the whole thing was so ridiculous. They knew that Koresh and his people went out every Sunday uh, they, they went to gun shows and they bought weapons and so on. They knew that. They could have apprehended them at any time. And there were no you know, serious crimes. They hadn't murdered anybody, uh, whatever the issues were, uh, taxes, uh, I don't know, whatever they were. But, you know, there are no, there are no fleeing felons here, you know, bank robbers, kidnappers, rapists, murderers. Uh, they were just people that the government did not like. Uh, and so they made these plans and they came to know that Koresh and his people had become aware of the government's plans to engage in that siege on that particular day. And they still went ahead with it. My autopsies and the work done by other people showed that there were significant levels of carbon monoxide, 
and other findings involving the gunshot wounds that put the lie to the government's case. And talking about uh, that reminds me then of, um, of um, a case in Cuyahoga County, Cleveland, uh, the famous Glendale shootout, in which um, three white officers, and as I recall, uh, I think it was about perhaps 10 African-American civilians were killed. And I went there at the request of the attorneys for the uh, uh, families um, and of the, uh, and the black people and um, uh, one of them who, uh, one who did not die, of course, who was on trial for murder. And I went there and I studied the autopsy materials. These three white officers who had been on duty for several hours at the time of their death, they had respectively blood alcohol levels of 0 0.23, 0 0.17, and 0.09 that had never been brought out at all. And then there was an execution-type wound across the forehead of one of the African-American civilians that had never been brought out either. Um, these are the kinds of things, and they had a darn good forensic pathology set up there in, in Cleveland. Coroner's office, uh, but this was good old Sam Gerber. And of course, Sam Gerber is the coroner who handled the Sam Shepard case. Sam Gerber, who had a strong dislike for DOs. This is one of those things, because a lot of physicians then, I guess MDs, and still probably still today, not probably, I, I know that there are some MDs who uh, uh, look down upon uh, DOs, which I think is absurd, unjustified, uh, 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 and, 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 and inconsistent, uh, quite uh, incongruous with what has happened between the amalgamation and the mergers in different communities and hospital staffs and so on. In any event, Gerber goes there to the house. Um, uh, and if you ever, ever, uh, if, if there had not been the syndrome of the Napoleonic complex described previously, it would have been defined by the physical existence of Sam Gerber. This was a little five three, five foot four guy, probably soaking wet, 125 pounds, but who, by dint of his own forceful personality, had come to be the <clears throat> secretary treasurer of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences in perpetuity. Before we had a bit of a revolution there, uh, I and and some of the other younger guys, and said, you know, this isn't right. You know, how about having elections every year and getting some new faces and so on. But Sam Gerber, he went there, and he, uh, he, uh, he quickly determined that Sam Shepard uh, was the, uh, the murderer. I was not involved in that first trial in which he was found guilty. I was not involved in the second trial when F. Lee Bailey, uh, whom I did not know at the time, became a good friend later on, um, got him um, acquitted. I became involved then in later years. This is now going back, what, about four, five, six years, something like that, when... Um, um, Reese Shepard, Sam Jr., as he's referred to, attempted to obtain payment from the state of Ohio for the false <clears throat> imprisonment of his father, which under Ohio law was money that he was duly entitled to. Most states have this, not all, but most states do. And instead of just giving him some payment, his father having been acquitted, they said 
know that you're not entitled to it because are you ready for this? And you don't have to be a lawyer to enjoy this. They said that your father was not found to be innocent. He was just acquitted. There is no such verdict in America as we find the defendant innocent. There's no such verdict. We find the defendant guilty. We find the defendant not guilty or hung jury. You, there is no such verdict in America as innocent. The interpretations of the news media and in your minds and mine of innocence, yes or no, but no such verdict. And so they go to trial and show you how rotten, how rotten um, they are that something even that had never been done in the first two trials, now, in order to try to come up with a motive in, in this is a, just, this is, the case is only about money. You understand? This is money. Nobody's involved here personally. It's money. They move and the court grants their right to, ex, to exhume the bodies of not only Mrs. Shepherd, Shepherd, but also not only Marilyn, but the, the unborn fetus. Why? To show that it wasn't Sam's fetus. It wasn't Sam's baby. And that's why he killed his wife. You talk about scum, prosecutorial scum. This is what they did. And I'm reminded there's a physician now who's been charged with the murder of his wife 30-some years ago or so in one of the Midwestern states. And I just learned this at a meeting in Atlanta uh, last weekend uh, um, forming this new American Board of Disaster Medicine. I just learned um, from the people there that they are attempting to exhume the body of his four-year-old child who died in an automobile accident almost 30 years ago because they say that the child probably overheard or saw something and that this doctor therefore killed in a staged motor vehicular accident was responsible for the death of his four-year-old child. You've got to understand, uh, you know, and I, I, I dwell on these cases a little bit because I... You know, an audience like this, I, I kind of think, and I'm being very candid with you, and I, I hope uh, not insulting anybody, you, you may lean uh, toward, uh, as you lean away from uh, the feds on many issues, you may tend to think that, boy, uh, prosecutors, you know, they're, they're the right people and, and so on. I mean, I, I like to take uh, advantage, quite frankly, uh, I speak to a group of uh, people, uh, solid citizens like you, to, to just make you a little bit aware of the kinds of things that go on uh, with, with prosecutors. And then to move on quickly, uh, there are so many other cases uh, that, uh, but let's, let's talk about uh, O.J. and uh, O.J. Simpson. 
is a case, of course, a celebrity going in and a bigger celebrity coming out. And uh, here again, you got a botched investigation. You got a situation in which um, the um, medical examiner's office is not called uh, for uh, six hours. Would not have happened when Dr. Noguchi was there, but they were not called until 6 a.m. Then they were told to wait and they would be instructed when to come out. Got there at about 8.30 then and were still told to wait and did not get to see the body until about 10 o'clock. Findings of rigor mortis and liver mortis and a lot of other things and the blood and the congealing of the blood and so on. These things are, are lost. They're lost forever by that time. And then the autopsies uh, were done. If you saw the preliminary trial, you saw how embarrassing it was with the pathologist who did the autopsy. It was so bad that they never even called him for the trial. They brought in the chief medical examiner who had not even seen the bodies, which can be done. Nothing illegal about that, but that's how bad it was. They started off by acknowledging about 41, 43 errors there. And uh, then the whole trial uh, unfolded. And talking about prosecutorial uh, misconduct, uh, stupidity, malpractice. They bring in uh, Mark Furman. They knew that Mark Furman had a record uh, having been disciplined um, more than one time uh, for uh, actions against uh, African Americans and other minority groups and, and words like that. They had the whole book on him, uh, the defense and the prosecution, to have <clears throat> not realized this. Uh, Forget the dream team, just the average attorneys, let alone that wonderful dream team, would have ferreted out that information. And the most brilliant cross-examination ever performed, perhaps, in the annals of the criminal justice system in America was that that was handled by F. Lee Bailey. And he went through Mark Furman question by question and question. And then finally, and so, Detective Furman, are you saying to his honor, Judge Ito, and to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, as you sit here today under oath, that you have never used the N-word. Furman had to say no. It was all out there. And nine African Americans on the jury. That was the end of the case. It was all over. Forget about it. Not to mention a few other things like uh, HCCs of blood was drawn by the nurse and properly recorded. And when Detective Van Otter turned in the blood specimen several hours later to the uh, tox uh, uh, lab, there were six and a half cc's. Where did the one and a half cc's go? It's all you need is a little bit of drop, uh, uh, one and a half cc's for a drop of blood here or there. A very, very fascinating case. Uh, O.J. was most probably there along with somebody else, not by himself not 17 wounds in one and 22 wounds in the other with severed carotid and jugulars and so on. Where's all the blood? Some of you were surgeons and all of you are doctors and you all went through med school and you've all heard or seen and encountered a major blood vessel, especially a young person fighting for their lives. The systolic pressure is way up there, right? That blood is going to go from here over to that wall if you sever somebody's carotid like that. Where was the blood? Where was the instrumentality? In the sink, in the toilet, in the shower, and in the bathtub at O.J.'s place, not one drop of blood. Not one. And you know how sensitive those tests are. How do you explain all that?